Good day, everyone. My name is Pietrus Potgeter, and I'm chatting with my colleague Bronwyn Howell of the Institute for Technology and Network Economics. This is the third edition of our podcast, Call and Chain. Good day, Bronwyn. Good day, Pietrus. So our topic for today is an interesting and topical one. It is the Australian National Broadband Network. So both Bronwyn and I have uh, spent considerable time in Australia. Uh, it's, of course, a nice and large country and orderly. And some of these uh, play a role in the story that we're going to tell. And uh, because of our academic interests, uh, the Australian efforts to build a national fast broadband network has been of interest to us. So, um Bronwyn, uh, my understanding is that all of this started uh, before the great financial crisis when a, there was a perception that Australia lagged the world in the quality of its broadband access. So I should say that at the time, Australia was definitely much better than South Africa. So I hardly noticed this, but this was uh, generally felt and uh, seen somewhat in the statistics. Um, and all of this followed on the period of liberalization and corporatization of the telecoms networks. Um, so do you perhaps want to say something about the background which uh, we see in the regulation of the privatization and the introduction of competition? Right. Well, Australia was one of those countries that in, in its, its long legacy had a government-owned monopoly telecommunications network. And when the liberalisation agenda began in the nine, late 1980s, they were confronted with the decision about what to do with their monopoly government-owned network. They also had decisions to make about the particular competitive environment that they were going to set up for the supposedly in the future privatised firm to be able to operate in. Now, they set up a framework in the, in the period of time in the 1990s to culminate with an act in 1997, where they would have the incumbent operator Telstra selling its services in wholesale markets to competitors at the same time as it was also able to sell its services itself into retail markets. So it had the classic access regulation that we've seen in countries like most of Europe um, and has prevailed in, um, and also in the United States with the original, the 1996 Telco Act, but subsequently backed away from. So we had an incumbent Telstra, which was big, and government-owned, it was going to be corporatized and ultimately privatized, and then it was intended that it would compete with with new entrants that would come in and sell both telecommute telephone services, and at the time also these new embryonic broadband services. And competitors come in and retail Telstra's services to customers. Um, putting their bits and pieces on, or they could build a new network in competition with Telstra. So all of this happened in the late 1980s, early 90s with the corporatization. I and mean, obviously with the introduction of ADSL and other services uh, that came after dial-up internet, this really became an issue. Um, so 
can you just tell us a little bit um, in your recollection uh, why this was seen as a system that provided bad service? Part of the complications in Australia are is that they've also had at the same time the privatisation of their satellite network provider and the deals that were done around corporatisation and privatisation involved not just the telco but the satellite provider that was providing satellite television services. Now the satellite provider got into financial difficulties and it needed to be privatised because that was a bit of a mess. And the licenses that were let for the companies around the 90s then got quite confused because a new entrant called Optus entered with a deal to get a mobile license and taking over the, basically they paid the debts of the satellite provider to take over ownership of the satellite provider and run a new mobile network. But, of course, with the, the changes that were going on in, in the market at the time, of course, they faced a great incentive to now develop into content markets. And Optus decided to roll out a fibre network, a cable network in urban parts of Australia. Sometime around 1995, Telstra decided at that point, because of the costs of providing cable broadband versus copper broadband, this is before ADSL became the dominant technology, that it too would roll out a fibre network. So large parts of Australia and the three main cities ended up with two competing fibre networks covering about 80% of the cities. So, so we, what have we have infrastructure competition, but also at the same time we have ADSL coming in as a broadband technology. So what we have going on by the early 2000s is that in the Australian cities, there's basically a copper-based ADSL network, which belongs to Telstra, and this is subject to access regulation, so it is resold, and part of that is the so-called naked ADSL, where the uh, internet service can be sold separately from the voice telephone service. Um, and we also have uh, cable internet access in the big cities, where there's actual infrastructure competition, so neither of the two cable system owners are forced to accommodate resellers on that network. Is that correct? That's correct. And, of course, the third limb to this is, is that once it became, in the 1997 Act, that Telstra was quite required to resell its connections, then at that same time, ADSL became the dominant technology for broad, copper broadband, and it suddenly became cheaper to sell new broadband connections on ADSL because they didn't have to continue to roll out the, five, the cable networks further and further into the peri-urban areas or perhaps out into the rural towns. So both companies at that point stopped rolling out their fibre networks, and all migrated to both Optus and Telstra, preferring now to sell new ADSL connections on the access regulation. So Optus as well now became a reseller of broadband connections. And therein lies one of the problems because we've got an incumbent that is now able to potentially monopolise the broadband market through access sales now overtaking the sales on the cable network, 
We have the cable network, which at the time was technically superior, but was not going to be rolled out further. And we've now got the third complication that comes in is that the government has both a regulatory obligation to set the prices for access regulation, but at the same time, they had stalled on the privatisation of Telstra. So the government as regulator was encouraging access regulation, but it still owned over 50% of the shares in Telstra at this time. So we developed over the early 2000s a really interesting set of incentives going on with the operators in the network. The government wanted to keep up the price of the Telstra shares that it was going to sell, which were clearly going to be higher if they could maintain a Telstra monopoly. Meanwhile, we had Telstra that was caught between a rock and a hard place because it could have developed further infrastructure in the cable network, but it, that would have dropped the share price. So that wasn't good for Telstra. So Telstra and the government between them now were in a position where all of the incentives were aligned with maintaining the Telstra monopoly, not letting a lot of competition come in from other networks and keeping the share price up until the point that it was going to be privatised. The so other thing... Going, That's a very obvious uh, conflict of interest there, but what I recall is that the public perception was that Telstra, which uh, is a company in culture uh, at the time very much like British Telecom or the South African Telcom, so essentially run by engineers and engineers with MBAs because the history was simply to build the networks and develop high-quality services. And that was a kind of uh, up to the late 80s, a political incentive. And uh, essentially, the government gave uh, these companies uh, or at that time, government departments, lots of money to play with. And uh, the engineers were building things. Um, so uh, there was a public perception in Australia that these clever people at Telstra were able to outsmart the government. So they were going to outsmart the government and the government was never going to be able to reign in Telstra and uh, force Telstra, which was uh, regarded as a necessity to provide better Internet service or closer to what the people wanted. So from what you've said, um, it's clear that that's certainly not the entire picture. So uh, the picture uh, involved a lot more uh, incentives in the whole business than the just a, a clever firm outsmarting its regulators. That would be the case if we were looking at an environment where the incumbent was fully privatised. So that would have been the case as in BT in the UK or in New Zealand, as was the case with Telecom New Zealand at the time. A fully privatised firm would be competing with the government and competing with the regulator. But in the Australian case, we had a firm, an incumbent firm, that wasn't really competing with the government as owner because the government as owner wanted to keep the share price up, whereas the regulator, the government as regulator, should have been wanting to promote competition. 
and actually create the incentives for new firms to come in and compete with Telstra. But the more competition Telstra have had, the lower the share price would have gone. So we've created a sort of catch-22 situation revolving around there, which means Telstra faces mixed incentives that other firms didn't because the privatisation has been delayed. Coming as well at the same time was the fact that the old copper network had become quite run down and in order to be able to provide capacity for a growing broadband network, they needed to bring in lots more investment. Plus, at the time... So at the time, it was becoming clear uh, that mobile was a growth area for both voice and data. And in fact, that a lot of most of voice was going to swift to, to, to shift to mobile. So it's clear that Telstra had little incentive to maintain a copper network on which it was forced to provide access to companies uh, that were just uh, in fact arbitrating around that access pricing so they were not forced to provide a service the 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 entrant companies they just did it wherever they could skim something and uh, the the Telstra was actually rather investing in its mobile network which uh, at the time was really good so I think Telstra had quite extensive population coverage on uh, LTE quite early into the game. So uh, pretty good, pretty good networks in Australia actually at the time. Well, I think the LTE story comes a little bit later. The issue that we have leading up to around 2005-06 was the issue that more money was needed to invest to upgrade the broadband networks. The voice networks had been made quite competitive anyway. There was good incentives there for investment and Telstra and Optus competed with each other quite well. And the third operator, Vodafone, came into mobile and mobile voice was bubbling along really well as a competitive market. The problem came, though, that Telstra needed to get new investment to upgrade the network. But if it upgraded the network but had to share its upgraded network with its rivals, then that had two effects. First of all, it would decrease the share price, which wouldn't be liked by the government owner. Um, but potential, or if, if they could sell everything on Telstra's upgraded network with access regulation, that might keep the share price up. But with the threat of real competition potentially coming from other areas, and this is where Optus's cable network becomes important, because at this stage, Optus was starting to invest in its cable network as well, upgrading its capacity using DOCSIS 3. Of course, Telstra's caught in a problem here because it's getting real competition from Optus that drops the share price, but it's got this problem of needing to keep the share price up. So, and not knowing what the regulatory environment is going to be, they decided that it was just too risky to invest in the upgrade on the copper network without some sort of assurance that they would not be required to share it with other people. And they wanted at that point to do a head-on-head competition of the ADSL upgraded copper network or VDSL network on Telstra against an Optus network that could be upgraded and sent out, particularly in those urban areas, to compete on infrastructure competition. So that was the situation, and we had an investment strike. Telstra said they would not invest in the network unless the government, the regulator promised not to make them share it, 
but the regulators said, no, we want you to share it because that way we'll monopolise the market with the copper network and that will keep the share price up. So the whole thing came to an impasse and no investment happened and that's what led the quality to fall. So jumping ahead to the present, uh, the NBN is theoretically to be completed in June. Uh, there have been cost overruns. Many premises um, have not taken up the service. Um, there have been changes to the plan uh, going along, some of which uh, we might have time to discuss. Um, so it's kind of there. It's a fait accompli. Um, I think we should um, just briefly go over what happened in the middle. So my recollection of it is that Kevin Rudd and the Labour Party won an election. By that time, there was massive support for this idea. And as part of the program of this bright new future, the government was going to build the National Broadband Network, which it was announced from the start would provide everybody with not everybody, but most homes and business premises with fiber to the home connections of one gigabit per second or something like that. And then for a certain percentage that was not too small, I think it was five, six, seven percent in that region, maybe three, but not less, um, of premises would be connected using fixed wireless service. So effectively mobile internet and satellite service because uh, since Australia is, you know, uh, basically the size of the continental United States uh, and uh, fewer than 10% as many people, uh, there's really a lot of places that are expensive to reach. So that was clear from the start. Um, what do you, do you recall were the main things that changed in this plan? Because this plan was going to be expensive from the start and it's partly partly because of the high cost of taking the fiber into the house so um, many people might not be aware that actually get that so-called last mile problem of uh, taking that fiber into a house drilling holes making trenches in the ground and so on actually costs quite a lot and uh, most of the time you actually can't, you, you can never force people to take up the service and uh, you can also not penalize them too much if they decide to cancel, in which case you've invested all of the money in, in, in getting the fiber in there and they're not using it. So how did that affect the changes to the system that eventually happened over the past uh, 10 or 12 years? Well, the first thing was that with the funding impasse, um, the government just decided that rather than mess around with the existing networks, they'd try and wipe the slate clean and start all over again with a brand new government-owned network. So in that sense, it was sort of taking the right back to the 1980s, where the government would own the broadband network. But the problem that they faced with that was that they had a lot of customers, about 20% of the market were using the cable connections, and the government had a problem about how it was going to deal with the customers. The idea was that they would transfer the copper customers from Telstra onto the new network. But still, despite all of the advantages of access regulation, still in 2007, about uh, over 50% of the people who could possibly buy a cable network were buying their broadband on cable in the urban areas. It was about wow. 
the market overall, but it was a dominant share in the urban areas. So, so that's the government, a really, really high percentage. And that's because Optus, having upgraded its cable network to the new DOCSIS 3 standard, was providing better broadband at the time than Telstra was on its copper network. So this created a problem. So the only way that the government could actually manage to make this work was to effectively build a new network called the NBN and effectively buy out Telstra and Optus from competing with the NBN. So basically, the NBN would now become the only fixed line network and all customers would now buy fixed line broadband connections from the NBN. Okay, Bronwyn, so the government effectively had to compensate Telstra and Optus for taking their customers away to the NBN. And I imagine that there was quite a lot of toing and froing about what to pay them. How much was that in terms of the initial estimate of the rollout cost of the NBN? In the end, it, it was about 11 billion Australian dollars, and it was about a quarter of the initial budget for the NBN. So the original so a budget. A quarter of the initial budget was spent for essentially nationalising existing services. Nationalising the services and buying the fixed line clients off Optus and Telstra. Of course, what that did was give Optus and Telstra $11 billion to go out and fuel the, their, their mobile networks. And the consequence of that is both of them and also Vodafone have spent large amounts in, in building perhaps one of the world's best LTE networks, fourth-generation fourth LTE networks in Australia because they had these resources to do it. So the, you know, Australia's mobile networks are absolutely world-class. But the consequence is that as the, the capabilities of the mobile networks have got better, a larger and larger number of people who might otherwise have bought fixed line connections on the NBN have now opted to go mobile only. So I think in the original estimates back in 2008, they anticipated about 17% of customers would be mobile only when the NBN was completed in 2021. But I think by, by about two, that, that had been passed by about 2014. And I think at the, at the moment, around 30% of households who could have the NBN are opting to be mobile only. And that's because they may be people who don't have big bandwidth demands or people for whom the services on the mobile give them flexibility that they would have preferred. So this is quite a challenge. No, no, so that's obviously the case, especially younger people who often do not have a big screen. So they used to do everything on their phone or their tablet or whatever. Um, they have no use for a really high capacity connection. And in fact, for them, it's just more convenient not to think about another thing. So, um, you know, they, they just want to pay one place for their data, essentially, and their entertainment and, and mobile works for them. Exactly. I mean, younger people, you know, flatting arrangements as well, university students, they don't want to be tethered to a fixed line connection. And those very flexible households, the individual is what matters rather than the collective unit. So it suits a lot of households not to have a, not to have a fixed line connection. So that's led to a different number of customers buying off the NBN than they anticipated. 
a second issue that the NBN came with was political baggage because it was a government-funded network and it was seen to be an example of nation-building the way it was introduced. It was decided from the very start that the connections will be sold at the same price regardless of the cost of delivering the service. So it would be these connections to an inner city premises in downtown Melbourne, for example, would be sold at the same price as a connection right out in rural Wollongarra or somewhere like that. And obviously there's a problem there because if you're going to have equalised pricing between the high cost and the low cost areas, you then have an issue about subsidising those connections from having to charge urban people more than the actual cost of the service to subsidise the rural people. And unfortunately, when you have those sorts of price equalizations, it's the enemy of competition. Yeah, because it means you can't really have competition in the subsidizing areas because if you have competitors who are not obliged to provide the service in the high cost areas, they can charge less in inner city Melbourne. And uh, there's no reason why customers would stay with the NBN in that case. Absolutely. So there's this dual problem. Not as many customers, particularly in the urban areas, as they thought they might have had, plus this issue of potential competition from people coming in to compete with them in the urban areas. Now, they anticipated this. So to start with, right at the beginning, they said if there were a couple of fibre networks, particularly in Melbourne, I mean, the Docklands area in Melbourne was serviced by actually a company that ended up serving NBN's own office itself in the Docklands area where a firm had laid out its own cable. And because they they were serving a lot of um, commercial customers with computer networks at that stage, and they could use exactly the same fibre that were connecting up the Ethernet connections to be able to now sell um, sell connections in competition to the NBN. So existing firms were allowed to continue to sell to their commercial customers, but it was said that if new networks were built that were going to compete with the NBN, then they must sell their services at exactly the same terms and conditions as the NBN had to sell its services. So what that meant was, even if there could have been infrastructure competition, then the entrants would have no ability to sell different bundles of products, a different mix. They were having to sell in wholesale-only markets as well as retail markets. So they were required to be just like the NBN at NBN prices. So that's an amazing level of regulation. Well, it it effectively foreclosed potential building of competitive networks for quite a long time. And that just didn't happen. Even though these networks could have continued to roll out, it was not financially viable for them. So the government had had just assumed a monopoly and forced private the private sector not to invest. Of course, this became a problem because the NBN was really difficult to roll out as a government company. We all know that governments are not the best owners and managers of infrastructure projects because they face different budget constraints and they tend to be very politicised. So it's really difficult to be able to get the rollout running smoothly. 
So before long, the NBN got beset with um, running behind targets, cost blowouts, all sorts of problems going on. And of course, government firms are not the most efficient as either. So the costs tend to go up because they are inefficient. They don't have the same pressure to keep control of costs that a firm with private shareholders would. So eventually it started getting to the point where these competitors to the NBN could actually come in and provide a much cheaper service. The more inefficient the NBN got, the more desirable it was for these people to actually extend their networks further, even with the restriction that they had to sell the same as the NBN. Because if the NBN costs went up, then the government had to put up the price for the NBN services, which made the people selling NBN lookalike services even more profitable, which gave them the capital to be able to extend out further in competition to the NBN. So, so we now have a problem, again, that the NBN can't actually recover its costs in the urban areas to subsidise its rural people, so it's stuck with a real problem. And the uh, solution, I understand, to that problem is now that they are slapping a tax on other broadband connections. So non-NBN yes. broadband connections will be subject to uh, $7.10. Why the 10 cents, I don't know. Tax on uh, fixed connections in order to subsidize these high-cost NBN connections. Yes, well, I think it was Ronald Reagan that said if it moves, tax it. If it stops moving, subsidise it. And I think that's where they've got to in, the US. in, the, in, the, in Australia. It, you know, they, they weren't getting investment, so they subsidised it. They then got a few things wrong because they were trying to shut out competition, but they couldn't. They tried to keep the competition out there to keep the monopoly for the NBN, but that failed. So now they've seen this. So now to stop it moving even further, they're now taxing it. And the idea of taxing the competitors to the NBN is that is to artificially jack up their costs effectively so it looks like the same as the inefficient NBN. Yeah. And they hope that that will stop the bleed from the NBN to the rivals. At best, of course, if you want to maintain your monopoly, that's what you would hope. But if they fail to stop the bleed at least they'll have the taxes to be able to subsidise the rural people. Yeah, so if, think, if you think about subsidisation, as we discussed earlier, um, you can't really, it can create competitive difficulties, which is not to say that subsidisation um, does not occur in uh, free markets because um, uh, there is cross-subsidization, uh, there is uh, price discrimination, so there are all kinds of ways. It's obviously not the case that companies determine a price based on cost for every single customer. So uh, there's just simplicity sometimes, and you charge customers the same whether the service is a bit more expensive to deliver or not. But these things are generally sorted out by the market. So the problem here with this NBN subsidization is not that without the NBN, there would have been no cross-subsidization of rural users. There probably would have been by private companies, would have subsidized some low-cost users. But that's part of the whole picture of competition, that uh, if it became too much, then uh, competitors would move in and undercut on price. So in fact, the market can also determine a 
correct in quotation marks uh, level of subsidy, uh, which is which can easily exist. Well, of course, the other thing that could have happened if the prices in the market had been allowed to adjust to reflect the costs of delivery, then it's quite likely we could have seen a whole lot of more different innovative solutions in rural and and peri-urban areas of Australia, particularly with investment in, say, fixed wireless. Places where it might not have made a lot of sense in the first instance to actually dig up and lay cables, maybe it might have been better to use more fixed wireless. And it's not axiomatic that that had to have been provided by the NBN. And fixed wireless is quite capable of providing connections of high enough quality to be able to do most things that most people want to do on a broadband network today, particularly in rural areas where there's not so much um, interference happening from lots of people wanting to do it at the same time. But if you're continually getting subsidised connections to a fixed line, then it dampens the incentives to put those other alternatives there. So now we get the engineers who want to play with the the sexy fixed line fibre stuff, want to push it deeper and have a monopoly, but that cuts out the people in the private sector who now want to play with this new wireless stuff and be able to create new and innovative offerings to, to customers in those sorts of areas. So we're not getting competition in good competition in either rural or urban areas because of this requirement that the government supplies, supplies its services at the same price across the whole of the country. Yes, and there's fixed wireless. So the fixed wireless is very naturally competitive. So there's quite a lot of it in South Africa and very urban and rural areas. You just have a company put up one or two towers, service service its customers from those towers, and that's it. And the other thing is that Australia, right from the very beginning, has had an obsession with wanting to have one single nationwide network. And in a broadband world, an IP world, you don't need to have one single company supplying everything. In fact, we've seen the whole of the internet as, as developed quite effectively with a with a bunch of different people supplying different network services in different parts of the of the the, the world. And that's the way things work with these networks now when we're looking at data. You do not have to have exchanges where you have to connect two ends of a line like we do in dial-up times. This is just effectively one-way traffic going in the IP world through internet exchanges to go out to the rest of the world and back again. So you can have different companies in different locations delivering equivalent services but still able to exchange their traffic with handovers at the internet exchanges. Now, we've seen these sorts of markets develop in the United States. We've seen it in New Zealand with the um, fiber broadband network in New Zealand. You can hear even in a small country, New Zealand's got four separate providers providing its fiber connections, and that's not a problem. But in Australia, they seem to believe that they have to have this one company owned by the government that has to cover everything. And so, that further complicates the problem. So if we can perhaps close with that. So former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has pointed out that New Zealand's uh, model for uh, investing in uh, national infrastructure or, or fiber infrastructure is much more efficient. So my recollection is New Zealand started later than Australia, had a more efficient model, 
and uh, finished earlier. Do you want to perhaps uh, summarize the situation there in uh, about a minute? Well, New Zealand never had, well, New Zealand privatized its firm very early, so there was no government ownership in the sector at the time. The government decided that it would use public-private partnerships with a variety of providers. They specified a standard of service that they wanted, and then they negotiated with the firms to provide it. There are a whole bunch of problems with the New Zealand regulatory regime that are somewhat different, which we can talk about at another time, but it has allowed New Zealand to build its network out faster, more cost-effectively, and have it operating in about half the time that it would have taken Australia. It's taken Australia to get to where it has with its network. And that's what Turnbull was referring to. The problem here was actually having it done by a government company. Governments are not good at infrastructure. It doesn't mean they can't fund it, but perhaps they should think more cleverly about the way that they engage with the private sector. They can fund the private sector to deliver it, but it will be developed quicker and more efficiently if the private sector has has the skin in the game for delivering it as well. Yep. And in New Zealand's case, it was not 100% government funding. The private companies were required to bring some of their capital to the game as well. And it does appear that if you want to have government funding for a fibre network, that model works better. Yeah, so um, I should, um, I think, perhaps suggest we close with just uh, thinking that there's a lot of news in the future about how the existence of the NBN will affect investment in new infrastructure in Australia. So we're working on a paper on the subject and uh, we basically believe that in 10 years' time or so, Australia is probably going to find itself exactly where it was uh, in the late uh, noughties when uh, the NBN project was started. So it might very well sit with a government-owned um, dominant company, which is has been disincentivized from investing for a considerable time. And then I hope that they have the wisdom not to repeat the same experiment. One would hope so. But, of course, the NBN is supposed to be privatised within five years of its completion in 2021. So we will continue to live in interesting times. That will definitely be interesting. Bronwyn, great chatting to you as always. And I welcome our listeners to go to our website, itne.eu, or search for Call and Chain on your podcast client to uh, listen to more editions of this podcast. And if you go to our website, you'll find links to some uh, work that we've done uh, in the general area of telecommunication and network economics. Uh, Bronwyn, thank you and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you.